Welcome to the Most Interesting People in Higher Education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle Production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm your host, Lee Bradshaw. The word interesting is in the title, and I think we have found, well, hopefully it's not the pinnacle of finding, but the the most interesting person in all of higher ed. I, I, I'm going to list a few things here, and I think you might agree with me. It's uh, Craig Boyce, Dean and Professor of Law at the, the Syracuse University College of Law, who was you know, a passionate sailor, classically trained pianist, collects and rides Harleys. He grew up calf roping. He's a former SWAT team police sniper, and of course, practiced law in New York City for almost a decade. And now he's he's been at Syracuse uh, College of Law for, I think, over six years now. Craig, Congrats on being the most interesting person I have talked to. Uh, and let's get into some of this. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lee. It's good to be with you. I guess we should start. Uh, what haven't you done? Well, I think there's still a few things, uh, a few things to be done. But uh, I think this all comes from uh, not being able to decide what I want to do. So I just have, have had a lot of uh, experiences, a broad variety of experiences. And life has been interesting. And it's not all by by choice, but just the path that uh, has taken me from, you know, small farm town in Missouri to um, to what I'm doing now as dean of a, a law school is an interesting and uh, circuitous path. And I want to, if you don't mind, I'd love to end with a conversation around the, um, I know we're not calling it the online JD, but the um, the hybrid JD, the risk-free JD program and master, like all, all the things you're doing there that are that are new and rich and um, you, you launched just before the pandemic. I want to get into all that, but I'd actually, let's start with, you know, how you got here, kind of where you started. So we're, we're in the Midwest uh, and we're growing up in that area. Like what was, uh, what was life like? Well, like I said, a very small, small town, America. I grew up in a town of about 300 people went to school in a, another town, about 1200. And uh, it was a farming community. And my parents both came from farming backgrounds. I'm black. I was adopted by white parents. My dad was from Ohio. My mom was from Kansas. And, you know, as I grew up, I was influenced pretty heavily by uh, my, my aunt and uncle uh, who had a ranch in the Sandhills in Nebraska. They had seven square miles. They had a cow-calf operation. And so beginning in junior high, every summer, I was up on the ranch uh, working all summer. One of my cousins married into a big farming family. So there was also combining wheat and uh, cultivating corn and driving grain trucks. And I was doing all that stuff from the time I was about 14. So I guess all through high school, my thought was that I would end up in agriculture in some form, but I'd also started playing piano in second grade. And by the time I got through high school, I had uh, gotten to the point where I was uh, offered a scholarship to go to the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory of Music, study piano. And so that that was a, a fork in the road that I took. I did that for two years, and then I realized there was. It was that's a very difficult path. A professional musician is a is a tough thing to be, mm-hmm. particularly in the classical world. So after two years, I left 
University of Missouri, Kansas City, and I did a number of different jobs. And I ended up at a law firm as a messenger. And one of the paralegals uh, at, at the firm was a reserve police officer in the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. And that meant that she would go out once a week on a volunteer basis. They reserve officers complete the, the academy and, and all the training. But she really encouraged me to uh, consider joining the police department. At the time, I was looking for a job with benefits. And frankly, uh, driving a police car, uh, lights and sirens sounded uh, pretty interesting to me. So, so I applied and uh, started the police academy in October of 1986. And that was really where I became interested in the law. I didn't know I'd pursue it at that point, but we had to learn a lot of Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment constitutional law in the police academy, uh, mm-hmm. search and seizure, speedy trial, due process, and, and the like, and really uh, was intrigued by that aspect of things. And so uh, a few years later, I had uh, become a field training officer, trained three new officers, moved into this tactical response unit of the SWAT team, where I was a sniper. And then uh, decided I would go back uh, to school and finish up my undergraduate degree while I was working. And so um, I switched my major from music to political science and had a professor really encouraged me to consider going to law school. That's what I ended up doing. Uh, after five years in the department, I left and went to law school at the University of Chicago and uh, was there after law school clerk for you on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit back in Kansas City. Then, then uh, moved to New York, began practicing tax law. While I was getting my, uh, while I was working in New York, I got my uh, master's degree in tax law from NYU, hmm. and continued to do that, like you said, for for uh, about nine years. I, I practiced before I got a call out of the blue from one of my law school classmates who was teaching tax law at Florida State, and he said, "You know, we're looking for a tax professor. You know, you're interested in." You- practice tax uh, at a high level. You always seem interested in the academic pursuit in law school. Would you be interested in interviewing? And until that point, I'd never thought about teaching or legal education as a, as a career path for, my, for myself. But I decided to uh, write a couple articles and see how the publishing and research aspect of it felt and decided in 2003 uh, to go into the teaching market. So I began my teaching career at Case Western Reserve University uh, Law School in Cleveland was there for almost seven years and was um, offered the role of director of graduate tax programs at DePaul University in Chicago. So I moved to Chicago for two years, had a lot of administrative experience there, and that kind of led to the, to the dean, the idea of being a dean. I'd been asked to be a vice dean, and then the deanship at Cleveland Marshall College while Cleveland State University came open. So I applied and was hired as dean at Cleveland State. So that was uh, between 2011 and 2016. Again, Ed um, reached out to me about the Syracuse position in 2016. I knew that the chancellor at Syracuse had been a plus school dean himself, and I uh, knew that meant he would understand legal education, which is very different than other parts of the university, other schools or colleges uh, on the university campus. So decided to come to Syracuse, and I have been here now for, as you said, just over six years. So that's the so that's for the those getting here. For those following along at home, one, I have no more questions. Like, I think that was the best summary. <laughs> but from, from farmhand to cop, from cop to lawyer, practicing lawyer, from practicing lawyer to academic lawyer, academic lawyer up to deanship is the head of the jumps. Okay, so let's talk about lessons then along the way, because now we know the timeline. What did you learn from farmhand and growing up 
cattle roping and all of that. And I, I should have said this. I grew up with uh, as a farm family too. We were dairy uh, and now there's an airport where our farm used to be. <laughs> but okay, so from from farm to police, what was the biggest yeah. lesson? Well, so uh, I, I think that the biggest thing from, from the farm and agriculture background, and you can attest to this, is that you develop a strong work ethic. It's hard work. And especially Militant. for you coming from a dairy, you know, the cows have to be milked. You know, there's no, there's no pause or time out on that. And so I think uh, the one thing I learned was uh, uh, the importance of hard work, the value of hard work and how you can be valued if you're a hard worker. I also realized, I think at, at one point I had a, a hay hauling crew with a friend of mine in high school. And after a, a day of taking bales of hay out of the field and putting them in the loft of a metal roofed barn in the middle of July, and it's a hundred degrees. And mm. I came at some point I decided there's gotta be a better way to, uh, you know, to proceed through life than doing this. So you also learn that, you know, um, manual labor, it's, uh, pure and simple, but it's also very hard, hard on the body. And so I think I was thinking about what are the other options for, for my life. And so that's why that air conditioned police car was, sounded really nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, so that was a, you know, I think the, the work ethic piece has helped in, in everything that I've, I've done all along the way, but, you mm. know, going from into the police department was interesting. I, you know, I had, um, I remember I went on a ride along before I decided to join the department and they assigned me to an officer, a, a grizzled officer had been on the department for 30 years or whatever. And, uh, I remember we got out of roll call and the first things we did is we got a call to go to something. I know it was an accident or whatever. We're all of a sudden we're doing a hundred miles an hour with lights and siren down Paseo Boulevard in Kansas City, Missouri. And it was like, wow, this is really Here we incredible. Are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of the funny things about being a police officer. You know, you 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 realize I'm doing the thing that most people would watch on TV. Actually, in car chases, you're in foot chases. You know, um, so it was a it was a challenging job, but it was also kind of an adrenaline rush all the time. And uh, this was I was on the department from '86 to '91, so this was sort of the height of the the crack epidemic. And so there were drug houses springing up at every block. When I got into the tactical response unit, most of what we did was serve search warrants on drug houses. So buys would have been made at the house. And uh, so our job was to go in and you know, kick the front door down and, and secure the drugs and the guns and the cash and make arrests as, as appropriate and necessary. And so there were also a lot of a lot of car theft at that time, a lot of joyriding teenagers new teenagers who could steal a General Motors product in mm. 30 seconds with a screwdriver. Yeah. And, uh, These days it's so, catalytic converters. Yes. For the, that's, for the, that's the hot ticket. <laughs> for, the, for the metals that are in it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, but, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it gave me a perspective, you know, the perspective of law enforcement. And, you know, it's, mm. it, we've seen a lot of, a lot of criticism of, of law enforcement, particularly along the uh, lines of the way that police officers treat uh, racial minorities. And this tendency of police officers sort of circle the wagon, the, you know, the, to defend other officers. I, I really had a, an inside view of that phenomenon. And I think a lot of it has to do with, just in terms of the, the cohesiveness of police officers and police departments, it's you, you, you see some really awful things. You know, hmm. you see 
yeah. abject poverty, uh, little kids who's, uh, you know, who are in, in really horrible circumstances, you know, you see death. And so I think at some point you begin to think nobody really understands what you do every day other than other police officers. And, and that tends to create a, a great deal of loyalty. But I would say, you know, there were, there were, you know, a handful of officers in the five years of the department that I ran into that clearly had some issues, but, and by that, I mean, maybe felt like being a police officer was a way to flex an authority figure, um, a project authority in a way that it's really not suitable for the job. But, but by and large, the officers I work with were just good people, men and women, families, and maybe, you know, try and do the right thing for the eight hour shift every day. So, um, but it, but having that perspective, I think it's informed a lot of things that, that have come up in the course of my career in law. I was I obviously didn't go the path of criminal defense or prosecutor, but these are issues that, that have relevance for what we teach in law school and what mm-hmm. our students are going to experience. And I think having that background has been helpful. So you, you followed that, that red thread, if you will, from executing the law or, uh, you know, it making policing the law, I guess is the technique. That's the word policing the law into really understanding at an academic level. And when you got, so what was, if you juxtapose those two of, you know, on the streets going hundred miles an hour, uh, making sure that those that are, that are breaking law, stop breaking the law. When you get away from that and you get into observing the law or something as completely different as tax law, uh, what's the shift like? Do you, do you going from blue collar to white collar and you're you're missing that the action or are you or are you still just as fulfilled yeah I, I think I'm 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 just as fulfilled now there are times when I think I started in the police department when I was 21 so by this time I would have been retired uh, had I stayed on the department with but a great pension that, and yeah yeah, yeah right <clears throat> but I think having practical experience with the application of the law is very helpful when you're involved in designing the law, when, you know, as an academic thinking about gaps in the law, a lot of what law professors do is they, they teach, yes, but they also are doing research about various areas of the law and where there are still gaps, where, where there are things that need to be changed, uh, revised. And so I think having an understanding of how things apply when you get right down to the nuts and bolts is very important, you know, so you know, having an idea of what is involved in an arrest, you know, really sheds light on things like the Miranda Way and why we have that, that, uh, why the Supreme Court has, at least to this point, supported the idea that, that, you know, it's important to let people know their rights before you arrest them. So I think it's helpful to have a practical understanding of where the law impacts people when you're thinking about writing about, teaching about ways in which the law should be altered. Or, or changed or, or better enforced. I think that that's a, I mean, I have to trust you on that perspective. You've, you've seen it all. Um, okay. So then you're, you're, then you go from the, the practitioner side of things into the academic side and you, you're now at a university. Do you look back at every, every piece that's gotten you to this point and like, it's all building blocks or do, do you not think of it that way? You kind of mentioned early on, like that was that hard work um, in the early hour or early wake ups and, and hot tin roofs of farming held, but like, have you built, is it a building of blocks or is it a red thread that runs? And you just remember them every once in a while? Like, how do you, how do you think of the past? I think it's building blocks. Well, yeah, you know, you know, the, the work ethic piece certainly 
was useful in law school because there's an it's an incredible amount of work and it was uh, one of the most challenging things it's the most challenging thing i tackled to that point and so just having grown up knowing that you don't stop until you're done uh, you know that was incredibly important when i you know tax tax was an unlikely path in, in a lot of ways i didn't have a, a business background an accounting background but tax law is largely interpreting statutes, statutes, statutory interpretation. And, and it has kind of an internal logic of its own that kind of appealed to me. And so that was that was what drew me in that direction. But I think my law school experience itself has definitely informed the way I think about how we educate our students at Syracuse. Uh, one of the things that drove me nuts was, you know, went through three, three, three years of law school and I get to a law firm. And one of the first things I was assigned to do was work on negotiating the tax disclosure provisions for a private offering member memorandum or prospectus is the kind of thing mm. that you give investors and nothing i mean i knew a lot of tax law but when it came to applying that in a practical setting like drafting and negotiating these provisions i had no clue how to do that and um it struck me this is a big gap in in legal education we are giving students a lot of substantive law, but we're not telling them how that translates into practice every day. And so that's been a theme of my teaching because I've introduced a lot of you know, experiential types of opportunities in the classes that I taught when I was still teaching tax courses, but also as a dean to think about how we can better prepare students for the practice of law. So that's led to you know a strong focus over my my two deanships on externships and on ways that we can begin to get students acclimated to what they're going to do once they get out of law school. Uh, and so that, in that sense, my law school experience has very much been a factor in the way I've thought about doing my job now as dean and how I lead our school in preparing our students. Okay. I want to get there, but first I, I just came up with an idea as we're talking. It's a bit Socratic, if you will. So okay. but it, let's play some trivia. So okay. You are you with me on this? Yeah, yeah. All right. Sure. Uh, so we'll do the, the themes of the the future of your, or the the past of your life. And I I've looked up things on my phone to ask because I'm like we've we've got to test some of this stuff. So you're you're a sailor. You sail, I think, with your wife, or uh, yes, and, and family. Okay. Yeah, family. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna name types of sailboats, and I and you got to tell me if it's a real sailboat or not. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll start. We'll start easy. Catamaran. Sure. Spent okay. a week on one in May in Grenada. Of course you did. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, and uh, how about a cutter? Yes, that's a, a particular type of rig on a sailboat. Yeah. Okay, so it's not technically a boat. It's a it's a rig that's it's, on a, a. Right. It's a sailboat, and you can have a gaff rig. You can have a cutter rig. You can have a sloop rig, um, a Marconi rig. So there are different uh, ways in which the mast and sails are configured. So, All right. So but you've yeah. you've. You're poking holes in my own questions that I'm making up with. All right. How about a kerch? A catch. Uh, K-E-T-C-H. Never right. heard of a kerch. <laughs> I, it's because I made it up. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get you on these. How about a duarman? That sounds uh, like it might be. Uh, it's not a boat that I'm familiar with, but it sounds like it might be something from uh, another culture, some kind of. You know, there's the Chinese have what they call a junk, which is a you know a particular kind of fishing boat. But I'm not. I don't know. I don't know that one. Okay. I even I, I tricked you with like act like I read it. it was, it's a <laughs> trimaran. 
Um, which you've yeah, probably yes. heard. Oh, tri- oh, is it trimarin? Oh, trimarin. Okay. Yeah, trimarin, trimarin has and... two holes. A trimarin has three holes. All right. And, uh, yeah. All right. So you 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 passed. Like you, I, I made. <laughs> and I I clearly failed on that one. All right. Um, where is Harley's headquarters? Uh, you know, it's hard to say these days. I, I I believe they're still in Minnesota, but you know they and and they've they've stuck to mostly uh, most of their components are manufactured in the U.S. So that's the one thing that makes Harley's really uh, people are loyal to Harley because they're they're made in the U.S. All right, but I want to say I, that it was Minnesota, but I I could be. Wrong. I'm seeing Milwaukee, Milwaukee, um, but they have. You're right. They have factories yes, it, it, all over. Looks like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting bit of trivia that Harley tried to uh, patent the sound of their motorcycle. That's right. That's right. Uh, All right, we'll go random fact for random fact. I've won in a completely different direction. Speaking of sounds <laughs> patented, John Fogarty, CCR, Creed- yes. Creedence Clearwater Revival, yeah. his, mm-hmm. his, the sound of his voice was owned by Sony Records because of a contract he signed in his 20s. And then when they did the revival tour, Sony said, we want our cut. And he said, why? And they said, because we still own your voice, man. And it was like a big lawsuit. It's like, yeah. Kind of, well, see, there you have the law governing, you know, law we go. and it We're governs these it. kinds of arrangements, you know. And so we had one of the things I did was a, an experiential class for students on offshore financial centers. So we spent a week down in Grand Cayman during spring break. While we were there, we learned, I did this for like eight years. And I learned at one point uh, that Iggy Pop mm. lived most of the time yeah. in Grand Cayman. And uh, so we reached out through an attorney we met down there who was a friend of his, and we actually had Iggy Pop come to our class and talk to our students. And, you know, I mean, we had no idea what to expect. It didn't really matter. We thought it was such a cool opportunity for, you know, he gave this really interesting in-depth talk about how lawyers had been useful to him. He said, you know, when I was the a musician starting out, you know, we'd write a song and we'd give the song away for, you know, a pair of speakers or, you know, some pants for our next concert or whatever. And so he just, he shared with students how important the law is in protecting the creative work of artists and musicians. And uh, so to your point, the law has uh, value and purpose across a wide array of uh, endeavors, including music. It's funny you. It's funny you say it that, and it's. I like that you brought it there. Like we we were just in uh, Fredericks, I think either Fredericksburg or Fredericks, Texas, uh, where it's kind of like the um, the Sonoma of Texas, if you will. Okay. With uh, two of our friends that they're they're a married couple, uh, and uh, they're uh, they're both lawyers. And it's funny when we hang out with them, we love it because it's like every thirty minutes, like, well, did you know the application of this, and like, it, and this is how the law handles it, and it's like it's fun. It's like um, if you're intellectually curious, you're you're kind of. Uh, you see them start to think like, oh, here it comes. What, how are we going to apply this to law? Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, it's, it's true. Law, law is really the way in which we manage all of our relationships and rights. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I, I, it's been a good path for me, both in practicing and teaching yeah. and, uh, and now in educating students about the law. Well, it got you on this show, Craig. So that's, yes, that's, well, <laughs> I'm fully aware <laughs> that this is a this is a rare opportunity. Yeah, um, I don't know if you've had legal people on here before, legal education folks on here before, but uh, you are the first. You are the first. Um, which leads me to the next question: Will you be my consigliere? Uh, we just got done 
watching the godfather a couple of nights ago my yes. wife and i so i'm, I'm looking for one oh, if you you need you, a wartime conciliary or <laughs> no it's just um you know general practice i don't know okay. just just in, uh, just in case an insurance policy if you will okay so let's let's get into the the, the stuff you're doing at, at syracuse i i'm i'm like holding back from diving into this because i i i've read up on what you've done uh obviously because it touches the industry i'm in but I just want to dive in and let's just start with six years, right? At, yes, at Syracuse just finished my College sixth of year. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. What were the first changes or innovations that you made when you when you got there? What did you first got there? What did you start to see and then put into action? Just to put it in context a little bit, I first became a dean in 2011, and in 2000 between 2011 mm, and right. 2019, there was a 25 percent contraction in enrollment in law schools. So the decade from 2011 to, to 2011 to 2019 was one of the most challenging and difficult for law schools ever. So in, in the sense that every law school is facing dramatic declines in applications, declines in enrollment, therefore declines in revenue. And so this, this, this was a very challenging time. So when I came to uh, Syracuse, you know, this had produced uh, multiple years of multi-million dollar deficits. And so my mandate really was to, to fix the financial situation at the law school. And, uh, you know, it's always a, that's always a pretty, fun message yeah, on day one. It is. And it's pretty simple. I mean, you, you know, the map, you either expand revenue or reduce costs or both. So, you know, in, a, in an environment where you have fewer applications to law school, it's hard to expand uh, revenue. We were having a mm -hmm. difficult time as were, uh, as was every other law school, just in maintaining you know, enrollment numbers. And so we, we um, there had been a, a decision by the faculty at the law school that they would consider doing an online JD program. Now, this was a big lift because the ABA, which accredits law schools, does not permit more than 30 credit hours of online instruction as part of the 90 degrees, uh, 90 credit hours in a, in a JD degree, law degree. And so in order to get around that, we we were required to basically create a program and then sell it to the APA and get a special variance from their accreditation standards to do it. Hmm. We were only the second school in the country to have an online program and we were the first school to use a virtual classroom. We, when we, in 2018, were looking for a virtual uh, video platform for our program, we heard about this company called Zoom uh, <laughs> and nobody knew who Zoom was. It was really brand new. Well, even when uh, they, they had, even they were booming in 2020, no one knew who they were because they bought the wrong yeah. stock. I don't remember that. Right, yeah. <laughs> <So that's, laughs> yes, you were the first to it. get it mistaken yeah. for something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I remember trying, you know, convincing our university IT people to let us do this license with Zoom. So we, that was mm. our virtual classroom. And that was the first law program, JD program in the country to, to do that. And, and then of course, a year later, a year and a half later, everybody is doing Zoom because uh, of the pandemic we were positioned such that we were able to have a lot of our faculty help train other faculty members at law schools around the country on how to do this. And so, but that, that JD interactive program, our, our online program was really the main work of the first few years in terms of programmatic work, obviously as a Dean, you're fundraising and you're, you're doing a lot of other things, but this was the, a, a big lift. And so we admitted our first cohort of students uh, 35 students in January of 2019, the ABA permitted us to have up to 65. So we had close to 65 that started in August of 2019. And each year we'd have 65 
when the pandemic happened in May of 2020, we went back to ABA and, and got permission to expand our enrollment to 100 students. Mm. And that's where we are right now. With, uh, 100 students in the JD Interactive program and our residential or JDR program, we have about 155. So roughly 250 students all together each, each year. Do they yeah, graduate together? How, they how do, do you, yes. Okay. It's a single, yeah. So there's, they're, they're, the timing Great. is different. So it's three and a third years for the folks in the JD Interactive online program. They go year round uh, versus um, three years right. in residence, um, fall, spring semesters for our residential students. But we just graduated our first cohort of students from the JD Interactive program in May of this year. It was it was a huge celebration Congratulations. To, have, to have gotten, gotten that first cohort through. And and they've done remarkably well. We rank all the students on a single scale, so we don't have a difference. And so if you look at class rankings, number two, five, seven, and 11 were JD Interactive students mm. uh, in, in this class. The JD so Interactive you're saying students, it works. It, it works. This it whole works. online education thing. Yeah. It turns out you can actually do it. And, you know, we had, so a few students from JD Interactive took the bar exam in February. So four of the five students that took the bar exam passed uh, in February. Most of the students will be taking the bar, uh, who graduated in May will be taking the bar this month and uh, we'll get results back in November. But I don't worry about the JD Interactive students so much with the bar exam because this is a group of students who've sacrificed a lot to, to get this degree. And, you know, they're juggling families and jobs and uh, they're doing it day in, day out for three and a third years, 10 semesters. They are some resilient, dedicated, hardworking folks. And uh, so I think that we're going to have really good uh, results on that front. And that, of course, is our goal. It's what, you know, the ABA as our creditor wants us and all law schools to do is to graduate students who are capable of, of completing our, our program of legal education and then being admitted to, to practice law. So in, in the first part of my time at Syracuse, that has, in fact, all, all through the six years, because I said we just now graduated the, 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 the first cohort, but that's been a, a big focus. And it's worked out well because that program draws from an applicant pool that's completely different than our regular right. residential student pool. I was going to ask you what the, and, yeah. what and the that, thematic and differences what that's, are. Yeah. And so what that's done is it's, 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 it's helped us to be able to attract students at a time when other schools struggled because they were looking at a pool that consists only of students who want to go away and live at a law school or live uh, in a place where their law school is for three years. So that helped us to be able to have revenue from you know the, the student tuition and not lower our, our overall standards for admitting students in terms of their GPAs and undergrad and law school admissions test LSAT scores, uh, which matters for rankings and, and, and other things. But so that's been um, that's been one of the most gratifying things that that's that's the big thing in my career honestly having done this because we are you know we're viewed by the law schools as kind of a pioneer in this space and uh, that's pretty cool in addition to that though don't you have a you have a risk-free jd i think you call it where you start um, is that is that every student they get a master's if they don't complete that was at cleveland state that was a program that we created there oh i'm, and I'm mixing up my readings was, okay yeah, it was just, uh, uh, and we haven't done that, at least not yet at Syracuse, but the idea there was that, you know, you we, we would have students who would come to law school and, you know, after their first year, they do well, but they realize it just wasn't something they wanted to do. And typically those students would, would then go away 
without the tuition for a year with nothing to show for. And so we created a master's of legal studies uh, degree. And that first year of law school would satisfy that master's degree. It's, it's some of the most challenging master's work you could possibly do is the first year of law school, you know, which right. if you in the paper chase or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a big lift, big, big challenge, uh, very stressful. So we felt that that was, um, the kind of thing that made sense in serving our students, you know, and that master's of legal studies reflects, you know, some, some really strong knowledge that they've gained in the course of the year of, of intensive legal study. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look into the eyes of a 2L, you yes. can see, you see tiredness <laughs> and a lot of right. learning at the what, eyes are the window into the brain. You can just, you kind of right. see it's like a lot has been processed. So yeah, yes. that, that's interesting. That's, that's All right. right. So you kind of, you kind of hinted at the the JD and excuse me for conflating the the risk-free from the previous one. I'm, you know, just reading my teleprompter, um, <laughs> it's mixing them up. What are the profile differences? You kind of mentioned that it's a different student. Curious what, uh, in the in the context of legal students, I've I've heard about business school online students, obviously, and physical therapy students, um, and I I don't know a lot of the context around uh, or the differences between the law students in the online versus yeah. on ground. I'm curious what you've seen, either anecdotal or or data wise, if you if you have that on in your brain. Yeah, so for for our program, the students who are in our JD Interactive uh, online program are on average 11 years older than our residential students. So 24 versus 35. Hmm. And they are by and large employed in a fascinating array of roles. You know, the class that started last fall, we had three physicians in the class, including a, an, a, a, an ER doctor from a city near Syracuse, a thoracic surgeon from Brazil. We've had some folks with different roles within the military, including a, a brigadier general. We've had border uh, patrol folks. We've had Apple marketing executive who wanted to do this so he could move from that career to a career of working in prison reform. You know, a lot of the students that are in that program have a have a mission, mission driven. It's not just, well, let me do this so I can go get a job. There are things that they want to do with the degree. And I think being 11 years older also reflects a maturity that really does make class interesting because these folks are bringing experiences to the classroom that are uh, that, that really can enlighten the whole study of law. Uh, you know, whether it's somebody who's you know, in law enforcement like like me in a crim law class, somebody who's been at Apple doing marketing and they're in a you know a trademark licensing class. You know, there's just um, there's a richness that they bring uh, to classroom discussion because their experience is really valuable. What else can I say about the, the, the these students are they're very determined and I will say they are incredibly grateful. This is the thing that struck me is I hadn't realized just how difficult it is to get a law degree once you miss that on ramp in your early 20s. Because if you're married, if you've got kids, if you've got a job, going back to law school is going to require you to quit your job if you do it in the traditional way. Right. You're going to borrow your living expenses and your tuition for three years. You've got to move to a place where there's a law school. And there are there are large areas of the country where there's not a law school within hundreds of miles. And so what we've, what we've heard over and over is the gratitude from students. Thank you for creating this program. Could not have possibly done this without, without you having created this program. And it, that really makes you feel good. And you see people's dreams being fulfilled. Um, you're seeing them you know, uh, go out and do good in the world because of 
what's happened. I have to share this anecdote. We had uh, hmm. we have a student. We brought four of our students to talk with our board of advisors in a meeting we had this summer in June. And all four of these students were doing externships in D.C. One of the one of the women who was doing an externship had been uh, had had been a drug addict, but had been clean and sober for ten years. Was working as a paralegal in a in a medium sized firm. Knew that she could do the work of being a lawyer, but because of her background and because that background had involved a, a felony conviction for drug possession, such the dream of being a lawyer was out of reach. Hmm. And I was very proud. She said, "You know, when I applied, they admitted me right away." And I was very proud of our admissions department that saw, you know, the potential in this woman. Her externship this summer is in the in the White House, in the National Office of Drug Policy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just, that's you know, awesome. It, that's incredible, you know, and um, uh, she was telling her story. Everybody's tearing up in the room. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, gives you goosebumps and it's, it's, it's a mission. It, it makes what we do a mission. So yeah, fascinating group of students as are our residential students as well, but this has opened up a very different pool that we just, uh, we've been very pleased with and, and inspired by. And you would have never, like, I feel like in life, you just, the more, the more you get away from tradition, traditional is the more you get into yeah. impact, like whatever, Absolutely. whatever traditional is in each of the contexts of, of, of things, uh, that's where you really, it really starts to get interesting, right? Yeah. You start I, I agree. Those, those I agree. cases that are just like beautiful stories. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's, it's a, that's a nicer version than the hacker that ended up getting hired by the FBI too, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I, I like, I like this one better. Yeah. Um, all right. So the you're, you're, you're doing amazing things. You have, you have life-changing stories, but if, if you're in or next to higher ed, you know, they're getting the faculty uh, interested in these things, uh, moving from traditional into like, right. Like how do you, um, how'd you do it? How did you, how did, not only did you convince the ABA to go past a 306 variance, but uh, how did you get a group of faculty to pay attention to this, take it seriously and believe you? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, the faculty, I give the faculty a lot of credit. First of all, they realized they were very aware of the financial, the, the fiscal situation of school. And we had to do something. We had to come up with some kind of program that's going to be creative. We had to find a way to generate more revenue. So I think there was a backdrop, you know, but no matter what kind of change you're trying to implement with an organization, it's always difficult to implement change. And not for everyone, but people have different appetites for change. You have some people who are quite willing to say, hey, let's let's give up this and let's do this a completely different way. And uh, then you have people who are like, well, maybe I could be convinced, but I'm not convinced yet. You have some people that's never going to happen for me. So you kind of work with the willing. And, you know, we had some really strong faculty who were willing to, to teach those, to build and teach, as you know, in the online space, building a, a course for the asynchronous content is a big lift. It's a project that for us was 12 to 18 months per course. So, uh, you know, you've got the asynchronous content you're recording with the animations and, uh, you know, the quizzes and, you know, those, those kinds of things. And so the faculty member has to prepare a script, a, a full script for their course. And then they have to, that has to be, you know, recorded in segments. And so mm -hmm. it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. but we had some faculty who said, you know, I'll, I'll teach one of the first courses. So literally we built it as we started it. Uh, yeah. it it's like, you know, flying the plane as you're building it. And there were a couple of times where something would happen um, with the scheduling of the, the, the 
videos or whatever, and we would be worried, are we going to have a class, a course to offer next semester for the students in JDI program? So we stayed, you know, just a step or two ahead as, as, and now we're at a point where we've built out the full curriculum that we have. It's a skinnier curriculum for the JD Interactive students, meaning they don't have as wide an array of electives to choose from. And that's just a, a matter of practicality. We can't, you know, we have a, there's a limited number of courses we can do all, all that work for. But we have been able to expand the, the electives that our JDI students have by, you know, working with alumni who are doing cutting edge work in various areas of the law who will come in and do a, you know, a two credit mini course over four days or, or whatever, so that students are getting in that program are able with their schedules to be able to take advantage of that and, and have some electives beyond just the core courses in the, in the law school curriculum. All right. So, oh, it's, yeah, but, but right. I, I have to give my faculty a lot of credit, my faculty, and, you know, I had associate, I've had now three associate deans of online education who have been responsible for the program, each of whom has brought a unique set of things and ideas, uh, sensibilities to the program as it's grown and, it's gotten better. Uh, I'm very pleased with where we are uh, right now. I mean, it's a, uh, you created a startup. It's just, you did yeah, it within higher ed, right? It's uh, <laughs> I it's, think if I weren't, if I weren't in law, I'd be an entrepreneur because I, 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 love I, ideas I think that's your and... next thing. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. What is it? Peter Thiel, the, uh, a startup is the largest group of people you can convince of an idea to build a different future, I think is maybe a couple words yeah. in there I got wrong, but that's that's kind of the approach, whether you agree with Peter Thiel's everything or not. But I think I think that that definition of startup is pretty good. Yeah, I think that, and I, and it's a mindset that that approaches everything. With well, if 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 it doesn't go the way we want, it's not a failure; it's a learning experience. And I think for lawyers, in particular, law faculty, that's hard because we are. We are trained to see all the problems and things, right? And so, yeah, I hadn't thought uh, of it that way. You know, look for the issues, spot the issues. If I get into this business venture, where's the risk to my capital? And so, you're right. It takes takes being able to think of of things as a trial and error process, um, and not right and wrong. Yeah, that's I really hadn't even thought of it that way. It's like you build a startup with a group of lawyers, like it's if you. <laughs> If you've been in startup land long enough, like I have, like, you know, like even finding <laughs> your lawyer, your general counsel, luckily for us, we have a very entrepreneurial and thoughtful lawyer, uh, but that's hard because yeah, by, it, by it definition, you're not, like, by definition, we don't want to take risk, right? Right. Um, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the complaints that, you know, you hear often about lawyers is they're the ones that hold up all the deals because, you know, they're, they're conservative and cautious and uh, right. Right. So finding somebody who can, who can both help help achieve the goals of the business and and uh, and still keep you relatively risk free. Nothing's risk free, you know. Right. Find. Yeah. So Laura Herzog, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for for being so flexible with us as we as we make change. Right. So uh, here's here's the big question, and we can um, you know take a, take a second to think about it. What are you thinking a lot about these days? What are you obsessed with? What can't you get out of your mind? Yeah, so you know, the, obviously, the pandemic for the last two years has been a huge uh, challenge. Apart from just the online piece, there's a lot of things that that introduced in terms of you know how you how you secure and, and make safe your your campus. And this is something that you know Syracuse University has, I think, done a very good job of managing through the pandemic. We we did go online for a, a bit this last year. We were back in person, and I think uh, we we've had 
no serious cases um, uh, of COVID, a very high level of vaccination. And so I, I do worry about will this uh, will this pandemic reassert itself? Will new variants create future shutdowns? So I think about that. That's a that's a looming thing that you just don't know which direction it's going to go. Another thing that I, I think a lot about is the demographic cliff. I'm sure you've uh, heard uh, you know, oh, yeah. a huge decline in the birth rate after the Great Recession. And so those those uh, that generation is much smaller, the kids born at that time, far fewer. And so now there are fewer high school graduates to go to college. There'll be fewer college graduates in that cohort to go on to law school. And so the demographic cliff will hit undergrad institutions in the next couple of years. Law schools will follow, you know, a few years after that. So yeah. you, you think about that. I'm always thinking about how to make legal education, the whole process of getting somebody from, you know, don't know anything about the law to now I'm going to be a lawyer and how, how that works. I'm, I'm a member of the ABA Council of the Section of Legal Education Admissions to the Bar. So that's the group that accredits law schools. So I'm very involved with the council and in, in reviewing, revising, thinking about our accreditation standards and whether those standards are hindering the evolution and innovation of uh, legal education. So that's a, a big uh, concern and consideration. I think about the bar exam, which is one of those things that the rite of passage, it's been described as kind of a hazing ritual because mm. we don't really know what it yeah. tests. We don't know if it, if it successfully te tests what it purports to test. It's both over-inclusive and under-inclusive. You know, my background was as a tax lawyer. I took the bar in three different states, none of which had any tax law on, on their bar exams. By the same token, I learned, I, you know, I had to memorize and regurgitate three different times a lot of detail about negotiation of secured instruments and endorsements of checks and, you know, uh, wills, you know, which is something that nobody sits down and writes wills from scratch. You know, that's become almost a commodity business now, but it's still a big part of the bar exam. So, right. you know, I think there's a lot more we can do to be more practical and effective. And again, in service of the people who are going to be using this education to actually do, do law. So, so those are some of the things I, Think a lot about just just simple things not 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 big complex not, not big massive <laughs> i'm gonna ask you another question because you're you're fun to ask questions to uh, so what do you um what stand out stands out as something that you feel strongly about in any of those topics or generally that is completely opposite of what most people feel strongly about and that so like a conflicting opinion um that makes you stand out my contrarian streak. Well, contrarian streak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a I'm a proponent of making the law school admissions test optional. You know, mm. there's a lot of pushback from people on that. That might not be something that everybody shares an opinion about. You know, the law school admissions test was created because there was no real admissions test for people going to law school when it was created. So it was created with the idea of trying to you know, identify students who would be successful in law school. It suffers from the same thing that all standardized tests suffer from, which is it reflects the inequities in our educational system. And so as a result of that, tends to uh, exclude people of color 
from law school. If if that's the measure that you're looking at, is just a particular score on on LSAT yeah. that yeah. that can tamp down the the ability to diversify. Uh, and so I I you know I'm a, I'm a proponent of making that optional and not requiring. We're you know the, the ABA as a as an accrediting group is the only accreditor that requires uh, an admissions test. So if you look at medical school or you look at architecture and, and there's not a similar uh, kind of requirement so the, the other thing is you know I, I am a big as I suggest a big component of either eliminating um, or at least substantially changing the, the, the bar exam now the National Conference of Bar Examiners which which creates the multi-state bar exam which most most states have some pieces of their exam in there within their bar exam and, and bar exam Particular, their state there, so there are fifty plus, you know, different jurisdictions with their own bar exam. Now, again, there's a lot of uniformity around a big multi, uh, what's called a multi-state bar exam (MBE), which is a multiple choice uh, segment. But then there are individual idiosyncrasies, and so the the National Conference of Bar Examiners, which created the multi-state bar exam, is in a late stages of project completely revamp the bar exam. It's called the next gen. And I'm hopeful that that is going to be a, a better way to measure and assess people's readiness to go out and practice law. But I think some of the things that you have to do in order to be a lawyer are much more uh, onerous than what was required to mm. be licensed as a public safety officer and carry a gun and shoot people. I mean, you know, I, I right. look at, you know, my, my uh, application to the bar exam in Missouri was far more complicated. And and you think about regulation, regulations designed to prevent harm. And so, you know, on the margins, the harm that's caused by people who are not good lawyers, it's it's really not so much about what they know or don't know. The problems that bar that bar um, you know disciplinary committees face are issues of not communicating, the occasional, you know, uh, taking uh, clients' funds and using them in ways that are unauthorized. But Hmm. Rarely do you get cases where um, bar disciplinary cases where it's well, he didn't know whether you could have a holographic will or not. You know, so I think when you're when you're doing something, you have have something that can have such a powerful gatekeeping function like a bar exam. You better align it with what your policy goals are. Yeah, and and um, so I'm hopeful that will happen this next iteration of the bar exam. And you know, maybe now is the time. You mentioned the birth earth. Well, you didn't use the alliteration, but I'll, I'll use it. Um, the birth dearth coming. Like, it's going to take something like that before innovation happens. All right. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it takes uh, takes a little bit of pain for for the species to try to survive and evolve. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. So maybe that's my contrarian streak. That and you can't trust you can't trust the incumbent to innovate. Sometimes you just right. have to make. Sometimes you have to replace. Yeah. Which is in line with the uh, optional LSAT, maybe. No, you're 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 absolutely right, and I will tell you that the pandemic, for all of the uh, horrific damage it's done in terms of loss of life, uh, impacts on the economy uh, globally, adding, I think, in many ways to, to the division uh, within our country. There's no question in my mind the pandemic advanced online education by a decade, at least in the in the legal educational world. It's not just that we were forced to use a technology, but I think it changed people's minds about learning this way. You know, right. we were concerned at the outset when we created this program, is this something that, you know, a law firm would hire one of our graduates having done this program or would they be cynical about the idea that it was online? When you've got every law firm in the country working through Zoom, just as we are right now, that goes away. 
And so uh, mm. all of those concerns we had about will this be accepted by employers have gone by the wayside as everyone had to adapt this kind of technology. So, you know, it's one of those surprising things that, you know, something can happen that seems completely unrelated and all right. of a sudden it's advancing what you're doing by, and I'm sure uh, the folks at Zoom were not unhappy with the returns on their uh, <laughs> On, on their stock in the in the course of this it, it yeah. made a lot of money for let's not forget you were you were before the pandemic you were the, yeah. the hipster version <laughs> of deans that that built online degree programs in complex disciplines like so yeah. don't don't shy away from that that's it's impressive stuff well thank you thank you thank you thank you for being on here this is awesome uh i i look forward to continuing our conversation through life and uh you're you're, you're an awesome person and uh very thoughtful and clearly the most interesting person we've had on here no no offense to the others but like you know we're, we're ob objective graders here okay <laughs> yes i i passed the bar exam well listen uh, right. it was a real pleasure to talk with you it's been great to, to meet and get to know you and uh, this is a great forum and uh, i've listened to some of the, the podcasts myself it's a i think you're doing a great thing by by putting people out there and talking about uh, how they're moving the space forward so excellent well, I'm really just giving you all platform. So I have the, I have the easy job. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. All right. Take care. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.